Hey, and welcome back to the Music History Project. Today, you're in for a treat. It's our favorite web clips. Yay! Hooray! Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's exciting today because we're going to be talking our favorite web clips, as you heard from that intro. Um, with over 3,000 interviews and counting, we're closing in on that 4,000 mark. We thought it would be kind of exciting to take a minute for each of us to discuss some of our favorites in the collection. Yeah, and I'm super excited, even though it's almost impossible to pick favorites. It's like picking a favorite kid, but <laughs> we were able to do it. <laughs> when you have almost 4,000 kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so many jokes that I won't make. Uh, mm. So, Mike, tell us, what exactly is a web clip? Well, I'm glad you asked, Dan. <laughs> a, a web clip is what we post on the website. Um, it's a short segment of an interview, um, usually between three and six minutes long. Um, and we try not to make these just summaries of the interview because um, the interviews usually range between 45 minutes upwards of two Four hour. hours. Yeah, it can, it can go on for a while. So... Um, we try not to just summarize the interview in the web clip. Um, we try to find either a very cool story or um, just kind of take a piece of whoever's talking, a piece of their history, um, and we display that on the website. So our goal for this podcast was to choose a few that we really like, that we think are kind of our favorites or quintessential to the collection, and I think we're going to start with uh, one of mine. Is that right? Yeah, we, of course, had to let Dan pick more than Mike <laughs> and I got to pick. This was a, a lengthy discussion this morning. But we figure since Dan is responsible uh, for the 3,000 plus going on 4,000, he should have a little bit more of a say of his favorites. So the first one is one of his favorites, and that is... This is a web clip taken from an interview conducted here in San Diego with two of the original founders of one of the great funk bands of the 70s called Tower of Power. These are two of the horn players. Uh, Emilio Castillo is the trumpeter and uh, Doc Kupka is the saxophonist. And together they sat down and talked about how that band got started. And I always love this clip. This is a real great example of the role of the uh, baritone saxophone in a funk band. So let's get started with this web clip. He came up to me after the show and he goes, uh, hey, he says, uh, your band sounds pretty good. You know, I go, oh, thanks a lot. He says, uh, it's only one thing wrong. I go, oh, what's that? He says, uh, your horn section. I go, what's wrong with the horn section? You know, we were tight by then, you know. Skip Mesquite was in the band, Mick Gillette, you know. We sounded good. He goes, your horn section has no bottom. He goes, you need some bottom. He goes, by the way, 
I play the baritone saxophone. <laughs> and he says, uh, I have a Selmer with a low A key. And I had just heard about this Selmer baritone saxophone that had a low A, you know, because up till then, all saxophones, you could only go down to B flat, you know. And on a baritone, the low A, and that meant you could play in the key of C and hit that low A, you'd be on the, you know. I was like, really? You know, he goes, yeah, you know. He says, why don't you let me audition for your band? And at the time, we had been thinking about adding a horn, and we had been auditioning these trombone players. We thought a trombone would fatten up our section, and we would get these guys from school, you know, because we were still in high school. We would get these guys from like marching band and stuff, you know, and we'd try to hip them up and show them how to do steps and teach them parts, and mm -hmm. it was just a lost cause. These guys were totally unsoulful, and you know, we were already tight. We had our thing down. And so we had all just agreed as a band, no more square horn players, you know, we're not gonna try to hip up the world anymore. We're just gonna stay as we are, you know. It's tight, don't mess with it. And that's when Doc hit on me for the, for the audition. And, I, and I, I said, you know, before, he just had something about his personality. It was, you know, he's a character, you know. And I said, yeah, you can come Tuesday. I gave him the address, you know. And I forgot about it. And we used to rehearse. My dad had redone the garage. You know, there was, uh, instead of a garage door, he put in two big regular doors with windows on them, you know, and you opened it with a doorknob, it pulled out, you know. But the, the door was like jammed, you could never open it. And there was two windows on the side of it, and we used to always crawl through the window to get in there. You know, we'd pull up the window and crawl through. And uh, so we're in there rehearsing, you know, we had like this half moon stage my dad had, had built for us, you know, and, and we're in there rehearsing and uh, all of a sudden there's a knock on the door, you know, and we. Somebody, you know, and I stopped the band and I go, go through the window, you know, and tries the door some more. I go, go through the window. <laughs> and then here comes Doc. He goes to the window. He's got this huge baritone sax and it's this disgusting old case, all dilapidated. It turns out his Selmer baritone sax had gotten stranded in Tahoe with the loading zones broke down truck. So he shows up with this hopeless con baritone saxophone. It was just rank, you know. So he's got this old case. He's the first hippie we had ever known. You know, he shows up and he's just bedraggled, skinny as a real Biafra time, you know. And uh, and he's at the window and he's, you know, and I go, come through the window. He looks at me. So I open the window. I go, you got to come through the window. The door don't work. He's, Oh, and so you, you got a picture. You know, we're all a bunch of little slick Vato, razor-cutted, you know, suit-wearing kids, you know, in Fremont, California. And here's this hippie with this broke-down sax trying to get through this window. He's way taller than any of us, you know. And uh, he comes in, and the guys all, it was like unison, you know, they all look at me like, what's this? You know? And I go, oh, I go, uh, sorry, guys. I told this guy he could audition. <laughs> Not what they wanted to hear, you know. I go, man, uh, I forgot, man, uh, he was with the loading zone. Remember the loading zone? <laughs> They're like, what are you doing, man? We told you we don't want to, you know, any of these weird horn players anymore. We need to, you know, learn these songs. we got work to do, blah, blah, blah. I go, look, man, he drove here from Berkeley, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Let's at least let the guy play a few tunes, you know? Yeah. And he comes in, and everybody's upset, man, you know, really uptight. Yeah. And so uh, we had a list of songs. And I show him the list. And I go, you know any of these songs? And he goes, uh, 
Yeah, Philly Dog, Cold Sweat, Tell Mama. He goes, yeah, I know those songs. I go, okay. I go, uh, let's do Philly Dog, you know? So we start out, you know, it's, uh, it was this tune by the Marquis, you know? You know, but now it's You know, as soon as you did that The guys just look, you know and We got to that tune And all of a sudden the tune's starting to change You know, they're kind of like, you know So then we do Tell Mama And Tell Mama was this really cool song by Etta James, you know And whenever it got to the chorus It used to go, uh Tell mama, da 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 da, all about it, da 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 da. Tell mama, da 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 da. But now it was, tell mama, da 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 da, ba da da um, da 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 da, ba da da um, da da. And man, everybody's eyes got real wide, you know. And then we hit cold sweat, and uh, you know, before it was like, ba da, ba da. You know, now it's adam, ba da, adam, ba da. You know. And, and everybody's eyes are wide, you know, and uh, my dad walks out. And my father comes into the garage and he says, uh, Emilio, come into the kitchen, I want to talk to you. And my dad never interfered with the band, you know, so I, was, I, thought, I thought I got in trouble or something, you know. And I walk in and he goes, hire this guy, he's got something. <laughs> and I go, he does, huh? And so I walk out, I tell everybody, Rehearsal's over. He's in the band. That's it. And, uh, that was how Doc got in the band. I told you that would not disappoint. I love that clip. First of all, he uses words that I'm not sure really exist, but he is really, really good at telling a story. Yeah, and that word we were wondering about was bedraggled, which I looked up, and it does exist. Oh, it means disheveled, disordered, untidy, unkempt, tousled disarranged in a mess must that's a good word amelia's got some pretty good vocabulary there <laughs> yeah artist <laughs> through and way, through a fun way to describe that story you could just picture it all happening <laughs> well clearly a very animated guy like captivating <laughs> yeah, so you definitely. can tell from that clip alone stage presence is just through the roof and if you don't really pay attention to the role of the baritone sax you don't really understand the importance of it until somebody like that describes it in a way that he did and i really appreciate that that's pretty neat and can we also mention how he, when we were sitting down to play on this podcast out, uh, Dan had to pick three, and he, even though uh, Doc wasn't on that audio with Emilio, mm -hmm. he snuck an extra yeah. one in there. Mm -hmm. I did notice that. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that was a great first favorite web clip from Dan, and I think now we get to move to one that Mike and I picked. Our choices are conjoined yeah because so. we've we've kind of been here the same amount of time so yeah. we've seen the same things yeah so who do you want to start with yeah what'd you guys pick hmm let's see well maybe we can start with your main pick my main pick yeah so my main pi pick is very exciting to me and because i think the story she tells is just great and it's a dance interview from 2017 with lita ford Dan, do you want to give a little back background about where, when, how, well, um, why, who, what, where, why? Grew up just absolutely in love with the Runaways. So when I had an opportunity to interview her, I was thrilled about it. And this was several years ago. 
Um, but that particular interview didn't work out so well. Um, her manager insisted that we do it, it uh, in the green room of this uh, uh, venue, venue in Ramona, California, which was a little bit of a hike to get up there. And just as the interview started, the drummer started doing sound check. And I don't think we got but like 40 seconds out of that whole interview. Um, so I tried for several years to do a second one, which we finally were able to do. She's very gracious. She had uh, given us extra time for this one, knowing that the first one wasn't all that great. And I just loved it. And she's a very compelling person. So it was felt like I was talking to an old friend. Yeah. And the story we're going to hear, I just think, is so phenomenal. And especially for... Uh young women in the music industry and outside of the music industry quite frankly um there was just a little tugged on my heartstrings just a little bit and uh, i just think not only that but now her passion for the program and her buy-in for nam's oral history and everything that we do is just so uplifting and it's just so great of her to be so vested in what's going on in this room so let's hear from lita ford's 2017 interview when i was a kid i wanted an electric guitar and my mother kept buying me acoustics. I don't even know what, what they were, what their names were. They were just some Sears model, you know, some Sears brand. And I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So I took the first guitar that she gave me and I played it for a year. That made me 12 years old. Second guitar I got, I said, Mom, can't you buy me one with steel strings? you know, trying to hint that I wanted an electric guitar. So she buys me another acoustic with steel strings. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, I, I can't ask her a third time. I got to go out and get a job. So I'm 14, and I go out and I get a job working in St. Mary's Medical Center as uh, one of the food assistants. I was pushing the food carts around to the, all the patients. And I saved up $375 and I bought myself my first Gibson SG, chocolate Gibson SG. But I didn't have an amplifier to play it out of. So my father, one day I came home and my father had purchased a Sony reel-to-reel tape, reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was probably about this big and it had big speakers that dismantled and then there was the tape, reel-to-reel, on the inside with all the controls and stuff. And I get home and I hear, Lita Ford, come into the house, 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 house. I'm thinking, what the heck is that? You know, and he says it again, Lita Ford, come into the house, house, house. It had a delay on it, I'm thinking, delay recorder there's my amplifier dad can I borrow that can I play with it so I took it out from the front house which was their main hang and to the back house which was my main hang where I could make all my noise and be a teenager and uh, so I took it out there my dad never got it back <laughs> and I plugged my guitar into it slapped on the echo and it sounded great. It was amazing. So I, I kept it. <laughs> $600 for a Sony reel-to-reel. Crazy. It was awfully patient of your dad to let you take it. You know, they were my biggest fans. Hmm. 
they were really my biggest fans and anything that I wanted and anything that had anything to do with music, they supported me 100%. It didn't matter if it meant taking away his Sony reel to reel. He was all for it. That's awesome. That's such a great story. <laughs> she is so fun. Isn't yeah. that neat? Yeah. yeah. She's down to earth and very uh, open about her past. Yeah, she's she's great. And I think not only what's so cool about that is not only the support from her parents, obviously. Look at that. Two guitars in a short amount of time span when she was a kid. And then, you know, lending her the reel-to-reel, knowing when she asked to borrow it, they weren't going to get it back, let's be honest. <laughs> um, I just think that that's phenomenal. But more than that, the engineering mindset. Yes, I mean, to absolutely. be able to look at a piece of equipment and go, well, it's doing this, but I want it to do that. I, I just, that's, uh, my brain doesn't work like that, so it blows my mind when other people can see stuff like that. Well, and then you compare that, because I totally agree with you, and that's one of the things that really made me want to have that story documented, which hadn't been previously that often, is the mindset there of now you can start understanding where these ideas come from with all of these riffs that she came up with when she was doing her heavy metal you know, uh, playing years later. I mean, she came up with some clever things that have been imitated many, many times. And you think, gosh, where the heck did that come from? Well, that mind is always thinking about, well, that's been done. That's been done. Oh, how about this? Mm -hmm. Very, very clever, uh, amazing talent. Yeah. So big thanks to Lita for sharing that story with Dan and allowing us to document it. Absolutely. And thanks for picking that one. That was a goodie. Yeah, I was excited. All right, Dan. Second, well, technically third, but second second pick. Doc didn't talk, so <laughs> that doesn't count. But you plugged him awfully hard. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> That's how we got into the band. Okay, second uh, clip is uh, from Charles, uh, Charles Connor, who was the original drummer for Little Richard when Little Richard started recording in... Um, uh, New Orleans, uh, this interesting thing called rock and roll. They were calling it jump blues or rhythm and blues at the time. And um, it, of course, changed the way we all think of popular music. And Charles was there on drums. Now, interestingly enough, um, I came to find him as a night watchman at a radio station in Los Angeles, uh, almost completely forgotten about the uh, the earlier part of his career. Even people that worked with him didn't realize that he was on some of the records that they were playing at that very station. Um, so it was really neat to kind of bring that out and document some of his stories. And uh, it wasn't just our interview, but several others around that same time helped really put him back on the map. And he's been touring and does some gigs. He wrote a really great, fascinating book. Uh, so uh, very, very interesting guy. And I love this clip because he explains the different styles of music that he was playing and that were available at the time and how he came up with the choo-choo beat that, uh, of course, are 16th notes, but he calls it the choo-choo beat. And it's awesome. It's very simplistic in some respects. But of course, it was the right thing at the right time to be a cornerstone in uh, the birth of rock and roll. Come with me. I want to talk to you. So Richard drove me at a car and he had old, I think he had old Packer on what, a 50, 49 pack or something like that. And he wasn't a good driver because I remember one time he had five cars at the post office that one time, boom, 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 boom. And he brought, us, he brought me to the uh, train station. He said, now, I want you guys to look different 
I want you guys to sound different. And I can't make you guys get your hair curled if you don't want to get your hair curled. But I want you to pay makeup on everything like that and loud clothes. He said, but Charles, come here. I want to talk to you about something. I said, now he got me here all by, what do you want to talk to me about? Let's go back to the train station. I said, we just left the train station two days ago. He said, no, I want you to hear something. He's a brilliant, Richard is a brilliant guy. He's brilliant, man, you know. And uh, so what happened was, he said, you see the way that train is pulling off? You know, He said, I wife wanted to pick up speed. I'm going to go in a car, and he drove about a mile when the train was picking up speed, and the train went. He said, that's the beat I want you to do. And he said, I don't know the notes, but that's the I want you to sound. When we had rehearsal next Saturday, he told me, I want you to play that beat. I said, man, what is this guy? I never heard nobody play no beat. Because those days, all they had was the fast domino beat, like, um, I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. And then they had the Boogie Woogie beat. I heard that. And then they had the Walt beat. And then the other beat with the head was the, uh, they had the swing beat, like, you know, like, uh, Count Basie, or Stan Kenton, or Duke Ellerton, or Buddy Johnson Band, or, or, or these big bands, like, you know. But didn't have no backbeat. I said, what the hell do you want me? Man, what, what you talking about? But I know what he was talking about. He wanted eight notes. And so, if you remember back there in those days, that's how Richard, all his tunes start off with a fast tune. Uh, he said, you know, like the choo-choo train. Those are eight notes. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. So you accent on the two and the four. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. But I'm doing the same thing, and that's a very difficult beat to play because you, you, you're really working your wrist, and it's tiresome. But... But I developed that and I created that beat, which you cannot copyright a beat. So I created that beat and that's where all this song come from. Like, good golly, miss that's a choo-choo train beat. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need some commentary oh, from the it. drummer yes. in the group. That's so great. I, it's just, I mean, everything he says is right. I mean, it's, it's there. nobody was playing anything like that back in the day. I mean, it was all just standards. Like, you did what everybody else did. Um so that's that's really crazy. I, what what's the background on the guy he was talking about that brought him to the train station? That's you know? Little Richard. Oh, Little Richard. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he calls him Richard. Very very fascinating story. That's a good web clip to pick. Yeah, yeah. That's a goodie. Yeah. 
All right, where do you want to go next, Mike? Um, I think I'll plug the one that I was going to pick. Okay. Um, and that is um, Dan's interview with Elliot Easton, who is the guitarist in the band The Cars. And the interview with him was done in November of 2016. And the reason why I like this web clip so much is because Elliot really paints a picture of the relationship between um, music stores and um, kids that go into music stores wanting to be musicians. And growing up in a music store, this just really resonated with me. Um, and it's kind of the ultimate dream for anyone that works or owns a music store, you know. And um, I'm just going to let the, the clip tell the story. One town away from where I grew up was sort of, was called North Massapequa, Seaford Plainview area and that's where Bernie Grayson lived so for some reason Bernie took a shine to me and he he, he could tell how serious and how passionate I was about guitars um, I drove him crazy calling him every other day to see if my guitar was coming because I'm left-handed everything has to be custom built and I used to take the bus the Sunrise Highway bus to go to Grayson's music store and just to be around guitars. I didn't have a job there. I didn't have any reason nobody was making me go there. But I'd go there and I'd sweep the floor and I'd help Danny with stock. Now roll up to about 1979. The first Cars record came out. It was very successful. It was multiple platinum. And uh, things were just going great. And uh, Gibson flew me out to uh, the NAMM show. At that time, Summer NAMM was at McCormick Place in Chicago. So I'm standing around in a booth talking to someone, and I see across the floor, I see Bernie Grayson. And I'm like, oh my God, I gotta go over and say hi to Bernie. So I really didn't even know if he'd remember me or not. So I went over and he was like, hello. And I said, Bernie, I don't know if you're gonna remember me. My name's Elliot. Uh, I used to drive you crazy with left-handed guitars, and you were so kind to me, and you drove me home, and I ordered, and he stopped me in mid-sentence, and he turns to, to his wife, who's like 20 feet away, and he goes, honey, come here, this is the kid I used to tell you about. And, and he was, had tears in his eyes. He was so happy to see me, and that things had worked out well for me, and that my band was making it and everything, and oh my gosh, what a, what a reunion. I just think that's so great. Like that's that's really the ultimate goal of like anyone working in a music store. It's like yeah, it's fun to be around the gear all day, but when a kid that comes into your store is really into music and really wants to pursue it, you do like everything you can to get that kid where he needs to be. And just hearing a success story like this one, you know, him becoming part of one of like one of the most popular bands at the time putting out multi-platinum records and then bumping into the the guy that gave him his start at a music mm. store. It's just, like, so cool. Absolutely. And I think it's even cool that, like, this, from Elliot's point of view, like, the celebrity that is the music store owner mm. who remains that icon in his, to the point where, like, he's this famous musician and he bumps into him and he has, I have to stop yeah. and say hello. Yeah. Like, right, right. You totally. can tell what an impact that that shop and that team made on his life, mm. you know, and he never forgot it. And I just think 
holds a lot of potential. Yeah, and I think the same goes for for any um, successful music store um, and for any professional musician. You always remember your the first music store that you went to Absolutely. and the first instrument you bought. And you remember the guy's name and what day it was mm-hmm. and all that stuff. It's it's just one of those moments that you never really forget. And I don't think you find that really in any other, you mm. know. Right. I don't know if you want to call it a hobby or activity or a passion. Like, mm-hmm. not a lot of athletes remember their first where <laughs> they got their first baseball glove from right. or something like. It's just that it's a different world mm-hmm. to some degree. And he's such an interesting guy. You know, he's yeah. been at so many NAM shows. Um, the very first NAM show I went to, I got to meet him. He was behind a booth, and you know, I, ever since then, I thought I kind of know this guy. You know, you're <laughs> kind of proud to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I go to the NAM show and I get to hang out with people like Elliot Easton. Uh, during that sh- that same interview that you got that clip from, he told me one line that I just have never forgotten, he, completely outside of music. But he says, you know, there's really only one difference between Jewish people and Italians. He said, it's the soup. <laughs> <laughs> now I and now I get the note on his piece of paper that it's just says soup. soup. And I was like, is Hell he, think, soup story. Is he de- daydreaming about lunch? I don't, I don't know what's going on. Okay, soup. all right. Well, he must know. Uh, so that was uh, Mike's and therefore my second pick uh, since we got lumped in together. And let's round out Dan's choice for this episode for his favorite web clip. Well, we have uh, two interviews with Clara Bryant that are on the NAM website, and I'd like to play a segment from the first one that Mike just recently was able to post for us, which is awesome. Do you happen to know what year that one was? That was 2003. She came to the uh, the NAM building here in Carlsbad, California, and we did this uh, uh, interview. And there's a couple of things to say about Clara. Clara the trumpet player jazz trumpet player who got her first start uh in the baptist church where she grew up and started playing in an all-girls band called the sweethearts of rhythm which were very popular these old girl bands especially during world war ii when most of the men uh, were drafted the women filled in and created these bands that toured around and the sweethearts of rhythm were uh, primarily african-american women that traveled around and had a radio program and even did some great recordings a very tight band Uh, so she was a sort of a uh, uh, um, a ringer for that band for several years and then she got her own re- recording career went on to uh, do Ed Sullivan uh, appearances she did an awesome imitation of Louis Armstrong uh, his voice and everything and um, I got to know her over uh, several years down here in San Diego at different programs that she would come to and really a very compelling person. And um, she's probably best known now and getting a lot of credit these days for being one of the pioneers of the LA jazz scene called Central Avenue, which was a a couple of streets in um, LA that really focused on the progression of jazz during the 1950s and 60s and included bebop and, and free jazz and really opened up that whole genre to a whole new audience. So she gets a lot of credit, uh, rightfully so, for that. 
But the clip I would like to play is actually, it harkens to a whole concept of the oral history program that is very, very meaningful to me, and that is gaining people's perspective on other people um, and, you know, influences and folks that really made a difference. Because, of course, uh, starting the uh, program in 2000, we couldn't possibly have interviewed all the important musicians and music makers. Uh, so many had left us before then. But to have the opportunity to talk to people like Laura about some of her mentors uh, and special people uh, is particularly meaningful to me. And, and this one is, uh, I happened to ask her about uh, a, a friend named Jonah Jones, who was a trumpet player in uh, doing very similar things to Central Avenue, only in New York on 52nd Street. Uh, Jonah was a very well-known uh, lead trumpeter for the Cab Calloway Orchestra in the uh, 40s. Uh, he had a big hit with Minnie the Moocher. That's uh, Jonah playing the lead trumpet on that tune and uh, had a series of million-selling albums um, in the 1950s, including one called Muted Jazz. In fact, an interesting side note, Jonah was the very first person to receive a Grammy Award on the very first broadcast of the uh, Grammys. Uh, it was uh, for a, a jazz record, was the first category, and he was the guy who won. Uh, a song that you never hear anymore. I, I can't figure out why. It's called I Dig Chicks. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, so here is a clip of uh, Clara Bryant talking about Jonah Jones. Uh, Jonah is one of our legends. A lot of people don't know about Jonah. Um, Jonah Jones. That's that round face guy. I can see that smile. I love that smile. And he had a sound, uh, and he would, he would be changing his mute so fast I couldn't keep up with him, you know? <laughs> he was a mute person. Yeah. He'd go from the harmon to the straight to the, to the, the bucket, and I said, oh my goodness. But he, get a, he had a different trumpet sound for each mute. You know, like if I play the, the harmon, it's still a trumpet sound, on, but it's a harmon, that rattly sound is there. Or the straight mute is, a, you know, that tinny sound is there. But he had a Jonah sound for each one of those mutes that he played. And he's the only one that I know, well, Miles had a sound, his sound on the uh, harmon mute. But uh, otherwise, it was definitely his sound on the harmon. And it, when he played open, it was the same sound. But most trumpet players, when they play different mute, it's a different sound for each one. And then when they played without a mute, it's a different sound. But Jonah, <laughs> he had the same sound. That's, that's one thing I can say about him. Um, that's I heard him mostly on, on records, recordings, because he was from, you know, back east. But those, the, the time up in um, Seattle, we, before we opened, after he closed, my brother and I would get off from work and go by and see him, you know, and, and I sit there and say, I used to listen to this man in the 30s, you know? It was, a, it was amazing, it did, it, and it feels feel like a part of him now, just to, hold a, just to hold his horn, you know? Yeah, I'm gonna give it a little hug. <laughs> What I guess you can't see is that she <laughs> was holding Jonah's uh, 1938 Oles trumpet during the interview. And she did actually give it a hug. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting me share that. That's a that's a favorite moment for me. All right. Last one of the episode. 
this I, Mike and I picked this one, but I think we have to say collectively. This it, is such a legendary interview. I don't. Yeah. It's it. Well, it 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 comes with a story, and and we need to tell the story leading up to this interview. Yeah. So who wants to tell it? Dan's preparing himself. No, that. I don't want to. I, you guys picked it. You tell the story. Okay, I, I think you should tell it, Elizabeth. Tell yeah. It? yeah. Okay. There we were. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me set the stage for you. No, uh, so we met this uh, legendary musician, um, saxophonist, and flautist mm-hmm. back in 2017 when we all, when the three of us got to travel to Nashville for the Summer Nam show. Um, and Dan was nice enough to make sure we got out to Nashville just a touch early so we could explore the Musicians Hall of Fame. So shout out to the team over there because that is such a cool space. Sure is. Um, And so we coordinated a little behind the scenes tour out there for the three of us with the curator. And we were walking around and if you haven't been out there, each kind of gallery or exhibit area is set up by, what would you, how would you term it? I think by location, right? By location, like famous recording. Like they had like a Muscle Muscle Shoals area, they had like the um, Motown Motown, Mm -hmm. and all of like the legendary studios set up in like their own certain sections. Yeah, and then what's cool about that place is it's not just famous instruments, it is the instrument. They, They pride themselves on getting the guitar heard on this record or the I don't know set of drums or they from had, Woodstock they had studio and, walls yeah it was, it was like really, it was yeah. hardcore I'm it's telling pretty you, cool yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we're kind of buzzing through there and we hit into the wrecking crew section which is you know out LA and we're talking and chatting and looking at the displays and Dan happens to pull out his phone and start taking a photo of a display and he's talking with the curator who's giving us a tour and mentions that he's always hoped to meet the iconic Jim Horn hmm. and he's been trying to locate him for so long and he's just always wanted to interview him and you know he's gushing and they're going back and forth and uh, the guy's kind of indicating the curator's kind of indicating that he might know someone that might be able to get him his email address I don't know we'll see what we can do um, and in the midst of it all the curator steps away because he's got to go say hello to someone which is pretty typical I mean they're doing us a favor we don't mind we can keep ourselves busy uh, not out of trouble but <laughs> Definitely in trouble. Yeah. And uh, so he steps away and he comes back up behind us and, you know, taps Dan on the shoulder and says, hey, I have someone here I'd like to, to meet you. <laughs> and uh, who does it happen to be? Uh, Jim Horn. <laughs> the Jim Horn. It happened, it just happened to Our walk Our timing in. was so perfect. Yeah. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So Jim was uh, in the Musicians Hall of Fame to show some friends of theirs. He was with his wife to show some friends of theirs who were in town his kind of display, his little corner of the display case uh, that had some of his instruments. And so, of course, Mike and I see what's about to happen. We can see the writing <laughs> on the wall, which is Dan whipping out his business card, trying to slide in there and uh, secure that interview. And uh, he is always be closing abc <laughs> always be closing dan so mike and i kind of get the curator to continue on with the tour so that way dan has a few moments to chat with jim and i went up to him and i said i've always wanted to interview you i'm dan with nam he goes really i've always wanted to go to nam <laughs> i'm like huh <laughs> maybe we can work something out <laughs> i got he and his wife and their friends uh, badges for the next day and the next day we happened to find a space in the schedule to do an interview with jim horn yeah it's just i mean it was probably 
one of the first real bonding experiences, I think, the collective stories that the three of us had yeah. that now gets referenced fairly frequently in the office. <laughs> so. And I think it's a favorite web clip more so because of the context yeah. than the actual content. But as it's you'll hear from this, content, the content's so. still amazing. I mean, yeah. he is he is a legend. So let's hear from Jim Horn. I started with the piano, didn't really care for it when I was eight years old. Then I went to, 10 years old, I went to trumpet, and that, that, was, that was miserable, you know, on your chops. And so I started listening to records. A lot of R&B records always had a sax solo on them. And I loved those bluesy sax solos. So at 12, I started playing saxophone, and my mom said, well, you can't play it unless you take lessons, learn how to read, and learn how to play it properly. So she was you know, great for me at that time. So I, I really got hooked on music and listening to the radio and just kept playing saxophone and, until I got better and better. And, uh, and then by the time I was a teenager, I had a little uh, band and we would play for dances at school. And I was reading all the music, you know, the, the melodies. And, and we didn't ad-lib much in those days, just played melodies. And uh, so I, I went through school playing, and uh, right up until the uh, uh, end of my senior year, uh, Dwayne Eddy's manager called me and said that they needed a saxophone player. And uh, so uh, I flew to Phoenix and with my flat top haircut and uh, crew cut, you know. And Dwayne always had that real perfect hair, you know. And uh, so he looked, took one look at me and, and I was a little startled. I'm six foot three, you know. So I started playing saxophone and he said, well, it'll do for now, you know, because we got to fly to Brooklyn, do the Brooklyn Fox with Alan Freed. So that was the beginning of my career, but I had to convince my folks that I need to go. I'm going to New York. This is what I want to do. So uh, I went ahead and it just went from there, you know, uh, into the studio scene uh, with Dwayne. Then I started meeting musicians and contractors. These are the people that uh, contract sessions. They'll call a rhythm section and horn section, whatever they need. And so I met a few contractors that really helped me out. And then uh, I met Hal Blaine and uh, uh, there was a few other musicians as well that, that helped me out, and Hal was the best at it. I mean, he just said, man, you guys got to be using Jim Horn here. And he plays flute and sax, clarinet, and he doubles on everything. And uh, so I learned how to uh, play oboe, English horn. Everybody said, the more instruments you can play, the more calls you're going to get. So I was on the Carpenter's records playing the oboe and English horn and the flutes. And, uh, and then uh, Fifth Dimension, you know, went in there and we played flutes on all their, their hits. And uh, uh, it, it just snowballed. It, you know, I, I was determined. My father always told me to be the best at you want to be. Whatever you're going to be, be the best at it. You know, he was a brick mason. He was a very good one, but I didn't want to go that route, you know. So I, I just really, I was determined, you know, and uh, I think you have to have that. If you're going to be a session player, you have to uh, uh, show up sober, you know. And we got on a uh, Frank Sinatra session on uh, Strangers in the Night. I was probably in my mid-twenties or something, you know, and uh, not, not, green, but I, I was able to, to read and everything, and I just wanted to, to play the best for the uh, producer, Jimmy Bowen. And uh, so 
the Frank Sinatra, he had two or three thugs, big guys from New York, you know, uh, always around him, watching, you know, taking care of him. One of them came over and, and uh, to the uh, you know the horn section and said, "All right, guys, nobody talk to Frank, okay?" And we said, "Okay, fine, you know, we won't say a word, nothing." We said, "Okay, fine." So well, what happens, Sinatra sees the horn section, because he was in those big bands for years, and he loves horn, horn players, comes over and uh, comes up to me and says, nice to have you here. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Sinatra. Now call me Frank. Just, and he went to, to each horn player like that, and he said, uh, see that bar over there? Uh, you guys, get over there, get you a taste, get a drink, and come right back and let's cut this turkey. And, and I, I did not move out of my chair. I wasn't going to go over there and start juicing and getting drunk before a session with Sinatra, you know. But boy, the trumpet players, one of them was from, Conrad Gazzo was from New York. He leaped down, practically knocked everybody out of the way to get to that bar. <laughs> so the, the trumpet players over there having a great time. We come back, we cut Strangers in the Night, big hit. You know, Jimmy Bowen knew how to cut hits, so I was working with the right people at the right time. You know, Glenn Campbell, he'd always say, hey, you guys got to be calling Jim Horn, man, he's the best. You got to call Jim Horn. So between uh, him and, and Hal Blaine, man, I mean, my career just really uh, took a big launch. And uh, from Dwayne Eddy into all that, it was the beginning of it, you know. Yeah, it reminds me of. I love it. It reminds me of the web clip we have with um, John Jorgensen, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if it's in the web clip, but it's definitely in his interview where he he accepts a position at Disneyland playing banjo and bluegrass <laughs> mandolin, and he said, "I accepted it." And the next day, I thought, you know, I should really buy a mandolin and learn how to play it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy these guys that that that. Have that learn so yeah. many like yeah. I, I can understand learning a couple instruments you know I've done it myself but just being able to say you know what I should probably learn some more and just picking up random instruments and like just the oboe I yeah. just picked that up people it, go that's to not an instrument you pick up like <laughs> <laughs> yeah crazy yeah very compelling guy that's neat thanks for sharing that one you guys that was good yeah, so that <clears throat> kind of rounds out our top six uh, favorite interview web clips. And we appreciate you guys joining and listening us recount those stories for you. And uh, these, along with 3,000 plus more, are all on our website, which you can check out at www.nam.org library. Thanks. We'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye.